Uh, please welcome Peter Strong. Thank you. Can I just ask you first, totally out of sequence, about your links with John Ronson, who wrote the Ministeric Ghost, uh, mm -hmm. sorry, who wrote the novel Ministeric Ghost, or the non-fiction account? Yeah, um, I got asked by the BBC to look at the Ministeric Ghost. I hadn't met John before, um, so we met through that. And this, I don't know if you know it, but it was a non-fiction book about um, a bizarre program that the Americans had had to uh, train a section of the military to have paranormal powers, which they'd put un under Reagan. Who, who believed he could build Jedis out of, uh, <laughs> God love him. Um, uh, including one of the powers was to see if men could kill a goat by staring at it. And, uh, and, and John had met one um, of these men who claimed he had indeed killed a goat by staring at it. But it turned out these goats were fainting goats, which is a particular kind of goat, and they'd been kept in a red-hot hangar for hours and hours before. So it's possible this goat just fell over, in fact. And, <laughs> <laughs> it was, but a lot of money had gone into it, and, and there were some very bizarre characters came out of it. And it's sort of the, the, the story he looked into had roots back in Vietnam and in the 60s kind of culture movement in America and the, this bizarre character who wanted to bring that, that, those kind of ideas into the military. And it was a very interesting story, um, but wasn't in any obvious sense a, a plot. You know, it was just a kind of random interviews, really. Um, so we, we set about trying to make a... A, a, a kind of adaptation of that. Uh, and I met John Ronson through that, and we, we got on very well. Um, and in fact, while we were, we, we visited um, the set of The Men Who Stare Goats, it was shooting in Puerto Rico. And we both went along, and it was George Clooney was there, and um, Jeff Bridges was there, and we were both kind of really starstruck. Um, people say that you know, the first day on set uh, for a film is the most exciting day of your life and the second day on set is the most boring day of your life, which is kind of true. If you're, just, you know, if you're not doing anything, you're just sitting in a corner, and it takes a long time for anything to happen, and then they'll shoot a very small, you know, like a two-line sequence, sort of five times over a whole day. So it's really boring. So we started, instead of going to the set, we started hanging around the hotel instead, and, uh, and we were chatting, and John told me that he'd been in the Frank Sidebottom band and how he'd joined that band, and we were talking about that, and I said, I think it sounds like a film. So we started writing a, a film together from then on, which became Frank. Very early on, we decided it wouldn't be a, a biopic of Frank Sidebottom, because John knew Frank, and, and it, he'd already said, actually, he would never want that to happen. But it became about uh, outsider artists, the kind of Captain Beefhearts, Frank Zappers, those people who are sort of work within, you know, notionally within popular music, but right out there on the edge of it that doesn't make sense to most people. And we were kind of attracted to that kind of artist. So we wanted to create a fictional version of one of those yeah. who would wear a big false head the whole time. <laughs> <laughs> so he did. And I mean, John Ronson's a really intriguing writer, but, um, and he was a musician as well. And, and sorry, it was a tenuous segue here, but, but you started out as a musician, didn't you? you I were... think, I mean, that was one of the things that we both sort of. Uh, one of the things that led to Frank was that John had been in bands. He's a terrible musician, but he was in bands. I was a bassist in a band, so, so that makes you a terrible musician almost by default, just being a bassist. <laughs> you um, were quite a successful band, weren't you, up in Newcastle? I can't remember what you were no, called. I have to be careful, because somebody could be here from the band, but yeah. no, we were terrible. <laughs> um, we had a little record sort of deal and stuff, and yeah, we did some tours and played with bigger bands and things like that, and it was great. I loved it, you know, in the happiest periods of my life. That's what I wanted to do. So it was from, from when you were a teenager? From when I was, yeah, from when I was about 16, that's what I wanted to do. And, sort of, um, and when did you form the band? 
I, had, I think well, I, I, it all fell apart and I went to university when I was about 23. So I had, a, I had a run at it, five years, whatever, six years, which were great. I loved it. And was that why, that's quite late to go to university. Is that because you were busy with Because the I was in the band, yeah, and I'd kind of hoped that was going to pan out, and then it didn't. So in the end, I went off to do English literature instead. But still, to this day, to be honest, if someone said, would you do what you're doing or be in a successful band, I'd probably go for the band. Uh, and I, in some ways, I think being in bands led to um, led to the kind of the road in writing that I went down, because it's, it's always been collaborative. It's always been drama, basically, that I've worked with, which is a very collaborative art form, you know. So, yeah, yeah. Because I used to love rehearsing in bands, and then I used to love playing live in front of an audience. And of course, in theatre, you, you're working with actors and a director, and you're rehearsing, and then there's a live performance, and you get that interaction with the audience. And film is, is kind of that in a way, although obviously it's, there's a, the distance of the screen, but you still you can sit there and watch you know, the film with an audience and feel that connection, hopefully. Yeah. How did you get from university into, into drama? I believe uh, Claire Malcolm was somehow involved. Via in Claire Malcolm, via um, New Writing North, which was just sort of getting going then, you know, sort of funding um, organisation. Um, and I started out stuffing envelopes in New Writing North office, and Claire used to pay me. Um, and, and then I got my first uh, commission, the sort of bursary that New Right and North had set up with live theatre. So at university, I joined the Drama Society, briefly thinking I could be an actor, um, and then discovered I couldn't act So at, this, so at this performance thing that was always It was the, it was the same kind of you. thing, yeah. I, yeah. You know, I, sort of, I was attracted to the idea of it, and, and I had a friend who'd written a play, um, and we all went up to the Edinburgh Festival, and I, was, I had a part in it. But I really was a really, really bad actor. Um, and my sister, who's always supports me in anything I want to do, I remember coming up after she'd seen me play and said, I don't think it's for you, Peter. <laughs> <laughs> so I knew then that I had to rethink. But had you been tinkering around trying to write? Are you no, it was, uh, it, was, it was, you know, it was, I think I had probably just, I don't know if it was just my personality or the background, but I, I, th I think the idea of being able to do some of those things had just sort of hadn't occurred to me in a way. Um, and, it's all, and, it's, and it's sort of, to some extent, continued that way. That it's always been in small increments, you know. So that I, my friend Steve at university had written a play and then said, do you want to do one together? And because he'd done it and he was in, you know, in the same course as me and the same age as me, I sort of thought, okay, then if you can do it, I'll have a go. So we did one together and then I did one by myself. Um, you know, and I remember when I got an agent, when I had been doing work in theatre for a while, my agent said, do you want to work on film? And I said, no, no, I just want to do theatre. And I think, again, it was that idea of that felt like a too alien a world, too far away. And then, of course, when I did finally start working on film, it felt more comfortable for me than theatre, you know, so... But how did you start that? Because it is, I mean, so you did a couple, you did a few plays. So I did, so, I, so sorry, yeah, so I got my first commission via New Writing North and the live theatre in Newcastle, which, you know, New Writing uh, Theatre, Lee Hall came from there. I was, he was, mm -hmm. he, I think he was the writing residence just before me, and then I got the writing residence. Uh, and that was, you know, in incredibly important because I, I mean, the, the, I think the, the biggest step you take as a writer is to start to say you are a writer and to have someone to give you that kind of reassurance and, yeah. and that kind of support is absolutely vital. But you were learning on the job. But learning on the job, I mean, literally, got, apart from doing some student plays, I hadn't done anything, you know, mm. and, and got a commission to write a play based on a little idea I'd had, which became a black comedy called Bones, which Jones. is about two Jewish brothers kidnapping Reggie Cray, or so they think. Hmm. Uh, and then I did another play called Noir with Live and Northern Stage. And Bones transferred down to London, to uh, Hampstead Theatre, and had a little run there. And on the back of that and some of the scripts I'd written, I got my first London agent. And then 
via, again, through those plays, people reading those plays, I got offered a, a film script um, early on. So that, so that I say, and that was exactly how it went. So, and, and that was quite common in those days. I think you know, likely. But when are we talking about now? We're we talking about the um, early two thousands, or no, uh, earlier than that. that. Sort of ninety-eight, ninety-seven, ninety-eight, maybe. I think for bones, some somewhere around about then. I think yeah. yeah. So I was probably down London by about ninety-eight. I think. Um, like and you, what was it you think they were drawn to? Was it your your dialogue, or was it your structure, or was it both those things? Uh, you know, you never really know. Um, what, what do you feel your strengths were with, the, with your playwriting? To be honest, back then when I look at it, I kind of think I was a, I was a good thief. I was a good um, uh, imitator. So there were things that I loved, like the Coen Brothers, or, you know, uh, I remember reading Martin Madonna for the first time. Um, and, and also, but also things like Mamet, David Mamet, I remember loving. And somehow when you put those influences together, you come up with something that feels just original enough for people not to be able to see where it's all coming from, you know, so you can kind of get away from all the, all the things you've stolen. Um, but it was, it was black comedy, which, you know, I always really loved and found to be a very flexible form. Yeah. You, could, you could talk about the world in all sorts of ways with black comedy. And the collaboration of, of, uh, of uh, theatre, was that, were you very precious about your language or were you, did you allow actors to kind of mess around with it or directors to kind of edit it? Or? I mean, again, I think I was... Um, Mm, it took a long time to have the confidence to um, get bolshy about the writing. Um, I still think I probably wouldn't get, but it depends who you work. I've, I've never had horrible experience. I don't think I've ever had horrible experiences. I've had one, hor that's a lie, I've had one horrible experience. But you know, you, the horror stories you hear about people you know, sort of trampling all over your work, I've never had that. Certainly at the live, it was always a really enjoyable experience. And it was collaborative, and you got to know the actors well. And we'd, you know, some scenes would be, I remember writing, writing some new scenes the, the night before, you know, and then they'd be up and being rehearsed the next day, and that was wow. great. It felt very exciting. Yeah, yeah. It felt kind of Elizabethan <laughs> in, a, in a good way. And that first film script you got offered, what was that? first film script I got offered was uh, called... It was, a, it was odd. It didn't strike me as odd at the time, because, of course, I didn't know anything about the film industry, but now I look back and I think, God, what an odd way to get given a job. But uh, it was a producer who'd had a script which was called Seven Psychopaths Go to Vancouver. Um, and they hated the script, but they loved the title. So he said, would I write a film called Seven Psychopaths Go to Vancouver? Which, in a way, was quite good, because I knew the location, and I knew how many characters were going to be in it. Um, <laughs> and I knew roughly what kind of characters they were going to be. So, uh, and, you know, and as a lover of the, the Coen Brothers, um, it sort of felt like, well, this could be comfortable territory. So I, I wrote a very black comedy that was about some serial killers who meet and all want to stop and try and form a kind of self-help, um, sort of Alcoholics Anonymous for serial killers, and realize they can't do in the city because there's too many people that are just irritating that they want to kill. <laughs> so, they, so they decide to move to this little town that one of them knows about that's supposed to be a white picket fence, little old America where you know, life can be good and they won't be driven to want to murder people. And then, of course, the people in the town are the most annoying people in the world. And, and then it became a bit of a caper thing. I sort of wanted to be a kind of, it was like a black comedy shame, basically, where they end up trying to... It sounds to, great. The, uh, the idea was great. <laughs> um, and then it just sort of, and, and I, I think the early scripts were okay, actually, but um, it sort of went into development hell. It didn't quite, you know, between all of us, and this is a very important lesson, I think, if the producer and the director and the writer don't all have the same film in their head, then it gets stuck in development hell. And I think I, I started off with a kind of Coen Brothers black comedy, 
uh, which, and there was things in it that they really liked, but just naturally by instinct, I think, the director, uh, Paul, who, who I like very much, is more of a mainstream uh, storyteller, and it just sort of got pulled between those two worlds. And so, so it, it, al it happen. almost happened twice. But did, did it, because later on there was that, the, the Irish director did in Bruges did one uh, called Seven Moons. Madonna's brother. Uh, no, actually, no, it's Martin Madonna, in fact. Um, oh, right, Ma yeah, Martin yeah. Martin again, yeah. With the Colin Farrell film about yeah. Seven Psychopaths, or something it was called. Something, yeah. It was, was, it, was that linked at all to yours? Or no, not? I don't think it was. I think it was just good. They just nicked the title, most of it. Yeah, I was, I was thinking about suing him, but I think actually at this, no, there's, there's no link whatsoever. The story was completely different. Were you then, were you then kind of in the business? You, it was easier for Well, that wasn't the first one to get made. The first one got made. So Paul uh, Whelan, who had been developing the Seven oh, Psychopaths he, he, he made a film called 66 Year, which we wrote the script for. So, weirdly, you know, I kind of started out wanting to write these Combrother-esque black comedies. And the first one that got made was a, a little sweet family comedy, you know, 66, which is about a boy whose bar mitzvah coincides with the 66 World Cup final. And everybody says, you're, you're, you're okay, because England will never get through to the final. And then England get through the final, and he's worried no one will come to his bar mitzvah. So it was just a little, which was his, his story, that was his bar mitzvah. Oh, right. So it was a little working title, um, yeah. you know, sort of family comedy, which is quite sweet, but not the kind of films that I thought I was going to be making, you know. Yeah. Um, but once you're in with working title, does that make it, did that make it easier then? Well, it, it made it, it's really interesting, because I think it had been so long trying to get Seven Psychopaths made, and so many times been at a party, and people saying, what do you do, and saying, I'm a writer, or what have you written, or nothing that you would have seen, um, that the, the overwhelming desire just to get something made, you know, um, and then you have something made, but you think, yeah, but that's not actually what I want to be doing. So then, and the problem with the film industry is, you, you, whatever you've done last tends to be what you're going to be asked to do again next. Mm. And it's very hard to break their expectations of who you are as a writer, you know. So we got offered a lot of the same kind of thing. Um, but then, somehow, luckily for me, um, the many goats came in, which kind of just managed to break away from that more... Um, obvious kind of family. Yeah. Although comedy. You'd, you'd done the Toby Young one. Oh God, I had, sorry, I had done that. Yeah, yeah. yes. Um, um, which is which is how to lose friends and alienate people. Yeah, which Sam again, was, you know, it was a kind of a mainstream rom-com, really, um, which I didn't do a great job of. But personally. that was your first book adaptation, then. It it was. Uh, it was, sorry, yes, it was, yeah. And that was from a memoir by, um, yeah, by, by Toby Young. By Toby Young about, about, it, about a journalist right going to New York and pissing everyone off. Like right to vanity. He was writing for Vanity Fair, wasn't he? Or something, yes, he got, got a job working for Vanity Fair. Yeah. yeah. Um, so how, how was that experience? Did you have to learn how to do, how to do a book adaptation? What was the...? <clears throat> I think, well, it was different with that because, of course, that was, that was a memoir. And basically, it was just a, it, there was a series of sort of comic uh, episodes of uh, him making a fool of himself in New York. And then towards the end, he met someone who later went on to be his wife. And the idea was you would take that idea of uh, an Englishman abroad um, who wants to succeed but just annoys everybody and make a rom-com out of it. So it, was, it barely felt in some ways like an adaptation. You know, there, were, there were episodes we took from the book and made, tried to sort of weave comedy out of that. And then there was a, there was a rom-com plotline sort of plonked on top of it. Yeah. So it, would, it felt like a more mechanical job of trying to bolt things together. You know. Yeah. And uh, with films like that, were you, did you need to be around, or did the directors not want you around while, while it was being shot? Um, was I, I was around a little bit with that one, yeah. I mean, I th I've never had the experience, which I know, and it depends on the director, I've never had a director ask me to be on set the whole time. Mm. Um, and I think the directors that do that is because they like to work in a, 
they like the possibility of reworking oh, or coming with new material the night before or, night before or yeah. on the day, which yeah, to yeah. be honest, I, would terrify me anyway. Um, but I do know some directors who, who work that way. So I never have. So normally what you do is you visit as a, as a kind of courtesy, as a tourist, you know, coming in to say hello to everyone. Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, up and to production, you can be working very um, heavily and you can even be working with the actors and, and so on, you know. Yeah. But, um, that's the way it's been for me anyway. So then you did Ghost, which was a really unusual film to, to get made. It, it, was, a, it, it was, because, um, you know, there's a, there's a very simple equation, which is you can tell an odd story if it's cheap. Um, and if you've got a lot of money, you can tell a mainstream story, um, then, and that can cost a lot of money as long as it can attract a lot of people. To come. You know, it's a very obvious equation. The bigger yeah. the box office, the more money you can, you can use. Um, and Goats was an odd story, but also an expensive one to tell, which is a lethal combination. Uh, so that took quite a while to get off the ground. Um, various th people liked the script, and that, I mean, that was the big turning point for me, really. That script, going into Hollywood, got a lot of attention for yeah. me that I'd never had before. Yeah. Um, it was on the blacklist and that sort of thing, you know, which I'd never had happen before. Um, and then Clooney wanted to direct and then decided he wasn't going to direct, uh, and then came back and said, what if I produce and star on it and my producing partner um, directs? So that's what ended up happening. Uh, and so you needed, but you needed someone like a Clooney that could put, yeah. them, you know, could gather the money that was needed for that film. And, and so then that is quite a leap. Then I well, thought that was the bridge there. There's these little mystery things that happen in your career where I'd love to find out how our names, because Bridget and I got asked to do Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy, yeah. which a few other big writers had been asked and had said no to. Um, and I don't know why our names are on that list. I really don't. We had done. No, I don't think we've done anything apart from '66. Nothing really. like that. No. I mean, they, they were asking us to do Christmas Carol, but I think that might have even been after Tinker Tailor. So honestly, I really don't know. And did you know the book, or did you know the TV series? I, I knew the book, yeah. and I hadn't seen the TV series uh, um, since when it was originally on. Yeah. yeah. Um, so we did watch it again, and then the main thing was that there was already a director attached, which was Thomas Alfredson, who's a Swedish director who had just made a. a a brilliant vampire film called Let the Right One In, a very different kind of vampire film, which had been a big hit. Um, but he was kind of a new boy on the block. So the big question was, would we be able to work with him because mm. he wasn't an average Joe I'd read director. there had already been an, an earliest, a much earlier script. There was. Um, Peter Morgan had yeah, done... Yeah, Peter Morgan. Oh, that's right, actually. Guy. I forgot that. Peter Morgan had already been on, yes, and done a script. Yeah. And, um, and it hadn't worked. But it, he'd gone down a kind of bond. So, so how does that? Would, did you then have to come and look at his script, or did no, you start? No, we, we never from looked scratch? at it. It was it was decided from the beginning we were going to start from scratch. I think he'd done a very. It, it basically gone away from the book, and the idea was, well, Bridget and I read the book. We loved the book, and we read it again, and we said, we'll do it. I don't know why we thought we could dictate terms, um, but we said we'll do it. But we want to do a straight adaptation. We don't want it to become car chases and. And what about the dialogue? How much of the dialogue is, is his and how much is yours and how much did you cut out? I'd say, um, I, you know, I honestly don't know. I mean, there are some lines in there that aren't in the book and there are some lines in there that are boiled down versions of the book. I mean, that tended to be the trend that you would, you know, say less, basically. Yeah. Uh, characters would say less and even a line would then be reduced often. But that's generally in film. Sure. You know, you don't want and, and massive they, And would you invent scenes because you and needed there was a scene th that... There were scenes invented, um, but often, you know, I mean, Le Carrier was a fantastic person to collaborate with. Obviously, he's been through this, most of his books well, have been was he an active? Was he an active He was very active. I mean, this is, I think, is kind of, you know, still considered the jewel in the crown. He's very protective of Tinker Taylor. Mm. First time I met him, he was slightly terrifying. And he sort of came, we went to his house and he came down with a notebook and, and just sat down, didn't say hello really, and just said, Right, well, and then so this is what we should do. Um, but and I think he was a little bit nervous about, you know, are they going to screw it up? Because he's had some great adaptations made and he's had some not, not so good adaptations made. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I think this was a very precious one to him. But 
we kind of relaxed with each other, and, um, and Danny was lovely, and he would tell us stories and say, and you know, we'd say, that's great, you know, there's little lines that he'd tell us that were actually from his time in MI6 and MI5, mm -hmm. which ended up, we ended up giving to Colin Firth. Um, and there were scenes, he mentioned the fact that they used to have Christmas parties, where Santa would sing the, um, the Soviet national anthem. So and uh, the police were called because people started throwing bottles out the window, you know. And the idea of spies <laughs> having the police called on them because they were drunk. So we thought, we've got to do a Good Christmas party. Yeah, so, you yeah, know, yeah. so it's sort of a lot of it came from conversations with, with Sakari. Yeah. Um, which was good because it's, he's a difficult writer to impersonate and you don't want to feel like you're doing a ventriloquist job, you know. Mm. I've just finished Smiley's People, a sequel to it, uh, which is actually a kind of a, an amalgamation of uh, Honourable Schoolboy, the second book yeah. in the Carla trilogy, and Smiley's People, which is the third. Did you say you've just written that or you're writing I've it? just finished it. Yeah, the first yeah. draft I've just finished yeah, yeah. of that. Um, and that is quite different from Smiley's People. It's a, it's a, as I say, it tries to combine the two books, and that involved a lot of new material. Yeah. And it's kind of terrifying trying to write new stuff that's oh. in the Lacari universe. Oh, that's great. I, I read there was going to be a sequel, and you were probably going to do yeah, it. Yeah, we, I think we're going to do it, yeah, with, with hopefully with everybody yeah, yeah. from the original. But going back to this one, and then how much did you have to interact, or did you want to interact with the director? I mean, did, did the director Thomas was very involved all the yeah. way through, and just came in as, in very different ways. He, I, he came in one day with a big bag of chess pieces and said, right, I think we should work out which character is which chess piece, uh, you know, which doesn't make any sense at all, really, but was, but was a lovely kind of <laughs> breath of fresh air in the process. Yeah. Or, you know, he'd come in and say, uh, if it was a fairy story, what, what fairy tale is Tinker Tailor? What is, you know, how can we reduce it to a fairy tale? Actually, that was quite useful. I was going to say that sounds that, well, that was really useful because yeah. we sort of said, yeah, it's about the, the rightful prince. It's about the king dies and the rightful prince is exiled from the kingdom and the, the wicked prince takes the throne. And the whole story is about the rightful prince reclaiming the throne, which is why the film ends with Smiley sitting down at the head of the table, which is yeah. where he starts, you know, um, yeah, having yeah. been thrown out of the circus. So he, he just had a, almost, almost uh, closer to the way you work in theatre, which is a lot more workshopping and a lot more coming at things laterally, you know, rather than yes. a sort of plodding logic. And did you know, before you'd finished the script, did you know who the actors were going to be and did that affect how you wrote no, the we'd characters? Already, we'd, al we'd already pretty much finished. Well, it. we were still working on the script, but just tinkering with it. Um, yeah. No, we didn't. Uh, yeah. It was, and, and you know, weirdly, we couldn't even think of anyone. It was a funny casting process. I mean, I'm, you know, because when you're working on this, I mean, we worked on it for about a year, constantly meeting with producers and directors, and occasionally when we're having lunch and things, would there be chats yeah. about, you know, who, who could be smiley? And nobody ever really came up until the casting process began, and, uh, and someone suggested Gary. And that immediately clicked, and nobody else was ever really seriously I was going to say, and then it seems obvious. And I then guess. it seems obvious, yeah. which is often the way with casting. In yeah. fact, sometimes, weirdly even, uh, someone suggested, and you think, no, that's never going to work. And then when you see them, you think, why did I not see that clearly, you know, which is why you have casting directors. Yeah. They're very good at working out who's the right person for the part. Yeah. Now, I just want to quote uh, the director, Peter Kosminski. He says, when I saw Peter Strun's script for Wolf Hall, only a first draft, I couldn't believe what I was reading. It was the best draft I had ever seen. He had managed to distill 1,000 pages of the novel and bring up the bodies, of course, into six hours using prose so sensitively. And Hilary Mantel called the script a miracle of elegant compression. Bless so these two massive books, six, six hours of telly, or six, six episodes of <coughs> telly, how did you do it? <laughs> I, I, um, I picked a spine. Uh, which I think you need to do, particularly if it's going to be a long story, the six hours worth of story, you, you know, and uh, it was obviously it's an epic canvas, The Wolf Hall, or the two books, and there were many different ways you could tell it, different paths you could go down. 
but I thought the bit that spoke to me was his, that it was a story, a little bit like Tinker Taylor, of loyalty, of those that are loyal and those that betray. And that you begin, Thomas, the, the, the defining thing for Thomas Cromwell is his loyalty initially to Wolsey. And that felt to me that it was a revenge story, in fact, that he would, he would see justice done on those that had brought down Wolsey. And then from that, everything begins to cascade because to, to um, achieve vengeance, he has to survive. And he's found himself on the wrong, on the, the losing side of, of a battle. So he has to make alliances. And he ends up making alliances with the very people he's seeking vengeance upon, the Boleyns. And that felt a very interesting psychological area for a character to be in. Um, and, and so on. And then you get closer and closer to the king. And as you get rid of all your enemies, you're left in plain sight and you end up being in a very dangerous position. Um, that you're too, you know, you're visible to, to Henry. Um, all of which, of course, is in the book, but I think other adaptations might have chosen other paths. So, you know, it's, it's about what you choose to draw out and what yeah. you choose to kind of chisel out of all the material, really. Because Henry talks about compression, but in fact it's as much about excision as well, isn't it? it it's about excision. It's, I mean, I always feel like what I'm doing, um, almost literally, is that you smash the thing up into pieces and then you sit there like doing mosaic work, sort of, because, uh, you know, the, uh, Eisenstein, an early theorist of film, talks about montage being the fundamentally what film does that no other art form does, which is that you have one image and you put it beside another image. And in the, com and in the juxtaposition of the two images, you get an effect that neither image had by itself, and, you know, these uninflected images. That's, that's what the art of filmmaking is. Um, and so with, um, when you're working with a novel, you'd, you'd have all these pieces of scenes, of dialogue, of moments, of plot, and you start to sift through them, and you pick two up and put them together and see what effect that has. And then you put one down, you pick another one, and think, well, what if that one is what comes next? Or what if we go to that next? Or what if we come from that? Um, and sometimes it may be that six of those beads will run in the same sequence they did in the novel, but sometimes you may put things together very differently and get very different effects. And what about the actors when they were rehearsing? Were there some kind of, I'm sure they weren't, but were there any kind of clunky lines that they wanted to change or lines they just didn't like? Or? Mark um, was, uh, who plays Thomas, sorry, Mark mm. Rylance, um, there were some lines he'd like to bring back from the novel where I sort of boiled things down or cut some stuff out. There was some that he asked if he could bring back in. Oh, really? And to be fair, I was open to that because often what I felt I was doing was taking out lines that were going to be unsayable by an actor and sound like, and sound like real dialogue, you know, as opposed to mm. prose from a novel. Because mm. there's obviously a real difference between dramatic dialogue and the dialogue you can have in a novel yeah. and it'll work in a novel, you, you know. Um, but I sort of thought, what if Mark thinks he can make this sing and make it work, then who am I to, to argue with him? Uh, so there was, there was some things went back in, really, but wow. you're talking lines, you know, a yeah, few yeah. lines here and there, really. For me, I find that really interesting, because I think Rylance is brilliant at actually sounding like an ordinary human being, like Absolutely. he's not acting at all. Well, that's what I mean. I mean, he's the one person, I think, who you could give some of those kind of lines back to, and you can make them work, you know, generally. Yeah. You think, no, we need to cut that back out, it's sounding too novelistic. Yeah. Now, do you mind asking, I know that your, your wife very tragically died of, of cancer before she won a posthumous award, as you did, for the BAFTA for the adaptation of Tinker Tailor. So mm -hmm. What was it like after that, writing scripts on your own, without that collaboration? Well, that was Wolf Hall. It was, it was um, after I was working on Frank, um, and Tinker Taylor had just started shooting when Bridget died. Um, so she never got to see it. No. Um, and I stopped working on Frank for a while. I remember saying to my agent, I think I'm going to have to take some time off, which you know, she had been telling me to do anyway. And I was thinking, because I didn't know what else to do apart from work, really. So I thought, of, thought I'd take a month or two off. 
and I ended up taking about a year and a half off. Uh, just, and I was thinking, because even though we hadn't written all of the scripts together, I'd always worked with Bridget, and I'd always ask her advice and her opinion. I was always knocking on her door when I was working on something. So it felt as if I had always really written scripts with her. So I wasn't sure if I was actually going to be able to do it anymore. Um, and, and after a long time, it was that Wolf Hall came through the post uh, with a note saying, would you be interested in doing this? And I started reading it. And of course, I don't think it was because of this, but it may be relevant that early on in Wolf Hall, uh, Thomas Cromwell loses his wife, and there's a very moving scene about that, and maybe something connected and made me think, yes, I, I really want to do this. Mm -hmm. um, <clears throat> so so it, it kind of made me think, okay, you can't do it alone, mm -hmm. you know, yeah, mm -hmm. basically. And, and also because it was a slightly different challenge, because you were doing episodes rather than a two-hour just one off. Yeah, for some reason that didn't. Um, I mean, I think the big question was, can you do it at all? The thing of can you write television instead of film didn't seem to bother me too much, really. Mm. I don't know why. It should have done. Mm. Uh, uh, you know, and I'm sure I'll, I'll screw up at something else. But Wolf Hall was really good material to be working with. So as long as you didn't do anything stupid, you, you, know, you weren't going to screw up. Yeah. And you've dipped your toes into directing as well now. You did a thing for Sky. For I've done a little, I did a little short called Nosferatu in Love, going back to my black comedy roots, yeah. um, literally black and white. And, uh, and next year, I think the idea is I'll, I'll start thinking about directing a feature. A full feature? Have yeah. You, have you got one in mind, or can you not say? There's, uh, the one that I think at the moment is top of the list is a, from a novella by George Saunders called Bounty, uh, which is a dystopian feature uh, where America is divided between mutants and norms. Uh, it's kind of Woody Allen. It doesn't sound like a Woody Allen, but it's sort of, <laughs> it's kind of like a Woody Allen um, Huckleberry Finn, if wow. you can imagine a Woody Allen Huckleberry well, Finn. I love the sound of Woody Allen Huckleberry <coughs> Finn. And you've started scripting it already, or you're waiting to see if you need... If you I've started on it a little yeah. bit, yeah. 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 I'm supposed to have finished it, but I have, in fact, only started on it. Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. Um, I've taken up far too much of your time. Thank you all for coming and being such a lively and attentive audience. Please thank Peter Stroy. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.